I'm now joined by Nick Bonesack, CEO of Strategus Asset Management and also Portfolio Manager for the first two ETFs launched by Strategus earlier this year, their Macro Thematic Opportunities ETF, ticker SAMT, and their Global Policy Opportunity ETF, ticker SAGP. And these are off to a nice start, already with about $35 million in combined assets. And Nick is now on the line with me from New York. Nick, thanks for joining me. Nate, thanks for having me. We, uh, you're nice to make some time. Well, so look, we're certainly going to get into the uh, two ETFs, but I actually want to start by talking about the financial markets right now, just given everything going on. And I, I was talking a little bit uh, about this in the uh, prior segment, but I'll, I'll set the stage with this. So I look at the S&P 500. That's down 16% on the year. Uh, you look at aggregate bonds. Those are down 10%. Just about everything outside of commodities is negative. And obviously, the Fed and inflation have been front and center, but we also have a war in Ukraine. There are still COVID concerns in various parts of the world. There is a lot going on. And so I'm just curious, as you look at the overall state of the markets right now, what are you seeing from a macro perspective? Like, like how are you explaining the current environment to clients? Yeah, well, it it is the right starting point for sure, and there are there is no shortage of of sort of sub uh, subtexts to the plot. I, I think the problem that's confronting the market, investors, and, and frankly all of us, is the universality of the problems. You know, inflation has become a global construct. It's not something that's sort of localized or domestic. COVID, you mentioned, of course, the war and its implications uh, has has a global reach, and so. You know, off the back of a, a decade where we enjoyed, you know, really accommodative uh, policies, both monetary and fiscal, which generally conspired to sort of help investors along, we're now being confronted with sort of the opposite impacts uh, at the same time that the economy sort of already slowing. So, but by our lights, the, the macro environment uh, is challenged and is likely to remain so, you know, really for the, the foreseeable future. And I don't want to be too doom and gloom about it, but... We, you know, we need to clear some of these problems, frankly, before we can start to heal. Here in the U.S., clearly a lot of what we're seeing right now is Fed-driven, right? We, to, to what you were just saying, we've gone from very easy monetary policy to now tightening. But let me ask you this. Do you think the Fed actually has the stomach to see this thing through? Like, do you think they have the conviction to raise rates and run off their balance sheet? Or can you foresee a scenario where maybe they flinch? Yeah, I think I actually believe that they they do have the conviction. I think they're trying their level best uh, now that transit uh, transient inflation or transitory nomenclature sort of been put behind us. I think they're trying to convey this notion that interest rates sort of a little bit on a on a on a more steady path. It's 50 basis points per meeting. Uh, the chair took 75 basis points sort of uh, off the table prospectively. We're of the view. Uh, that he did so really because they're going to rely on quantitative tightening, which we can, which we can talk about, uh, to try and alleviate uh, some of the, uh, the, you know, the the the, um, uh, the headwinds of of inflation while maintaining some stability in in the labor market. I do think though that the conviction is less about trying to tackle those problems and more about trying to convince investors that they're not there is not an implicit Fed put uh, and that they're willing to risk 
um, they're willing to risk the holders of risk assets to achieve what their their two principal objectives are. And I'd say pointedly to your question, whether they see it through, it may be less a function of, of their conviction and more a function of whether something breaks, which requires them to reverse course beforehand. Well, and I think that brings up a good point. You, you, you know, you mentioned the Fed finally putting the word transitory aside. I, I'm curious, do you think the Fed is already too late here? And, and it's funny because I, I certainly don't have a crystal ball, but but I'll tell you, and anybody who listens to this podcast knows I was screaming inflation earlier last year. And for whatever reason, uh, the, the Fed, they just seem to ignore all of the signs. Now, maybe some of that was intentional. Who, who knows? But they did keep saying inflation was transitory, and it just didn't seem like they were taking it very seriously. So I guess my question to you, Nick, is do you think they've made a major policy error here, and now the financial markets are going to have to pay the price? I, I do, to uh, to a certain degree, believe that in hindsight, they feel they may have been behind the ball and are even still believe they're behind the ball. The, the benefit of being the central bank is that you can catch up very quickly, depending upon what outcome you're trying to achieve. And I think they've they've recognized that the holders of risk assets are, are going to come under some uh, sort of further pain in, in order, as we talked about earlier, to, to get to inflation uh, while keeping a mind's eye on uh, on unemployment. You know, you talk about, you know, uh, for listeners of your podcast, which we've been for a long time, and, and certainly uh, readers of our own research and investors in our work will know that inflation for longer has been a principal theme of ours uh, for, I think, many of the same reasons, if not all the same, all the same reasons. And, and now what you're seeing with some of the Walmart uh, earnings releases and the Target earnings releases and other things uh, is that it's starting to change uh, consumers' uh, behavior patterns. With rates beginning to come up, I'm, I'm curious, what do you think about overall stock market valuations right now? And again, I've said for the last several months, I feel like a lot of the stocks that have been crushed recently, things like unprofitable tech and meme stocks, some of the crypto companies, in my opinion, they deserve to be crushed. I feel like the market has done a pretty efficient job of, uh, of taking out the garbage and I'm just honestly not surprised at some of the carnage. And, and once again, I don't have a crystal ball. Everybody knows that. I just feel like a lot of the stuff getting hammered is the same stuff that everyone was saying was overvalued last year. And, and so in many ways, I view this as healthy, if not particularly fun. It's healthy. I, I guess, do you agree with that? And, and what do you think of overall stock market valuations right now? Well, it's certainly not going to be fun. I'd absolutely agree with that. I, I, I do think that there's an element of sort of um, level-setting expectations against price uh, that are that's critical for markets to clear. There's no question. We have, you know, significant imbalances between supply uh, and demand. I'm struck, uh, candidly, by the idea that some of the earnings numbers have held in there. You know, we've seen a particular erosion. Uh, on on the margin side of the equation, you know, EBITDA margins uh, for the index S and P 500 at 17 percent, you know, well off, you know, well off their highs, and so I would anticipate some of those earnings expectations have to come lower. You're seeing it on both sides, right? As we saw it, I mentioned Staples uh, companies, Walmart, Target, etc. Uh, a moment ago, you're seeing it from uh, some of the you know the long duration stocks, uh, Snapchat, etc. Um, this morning in this morning session, and I think for for our investors and and you know for for our, by our lights, the key here is to focus on companies that existed prior to the period of overly accommodative monetary policy. Uh, you know, there's a lot of companies that were formed and came public uh, in an era of of easy money, 
And what earnings they do have were backstopped by that condition. And frankly, uh, the tide may be, may be going out. So w- with respect to your question specifically, you know, if the earnings held up, you know, at 17 times, the market's not uh, terrifically expensive. But I think we have some suspicion as to whether the earnings will hold up uh, in the fundamental environment that's ahead of us. Okay, so this is perfect. I'm glad we started with the markets because I, I do think this sets a really nice backdrop to talk about your two ETFs. And, and let's get into those. So the two ETFs launched earlier this year. Uh, let's first look at the Strategus Macro Thematic Opportunities ETF, ticker SAMT. Uh, g- give us a quick snapshot on this one. What, is this, what does this hold? What's the investment process? Uh, what's, what's the investment goal here? So the investment goal was really threefold. The first is w- of which was we, we wanted readers of our research to not be surprised by anything we were doing in the portfolio. And for 15, 20 years, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the hallmark, if you will, of our work was to try and take macro and distill it into an investable conclusion. And so the outlet for that was stock baskets, stock baskets around macro themes and investing in sort of the three or four or five themes with which uh, our research gives us the greatest conviction seemed like an appropriate way uh, to build uh, you know to build a product of exposure for for clients. One of the things that we sort of you know saw in the development process of this was that a lot of the um, thematic ETFs and they you know the proliferation has been uh, unbelievable uh, that have come out over the last five and seven years, the performance profile has not been terrifically strong. And, and one of the things that struck us on why that was the case is because once a, a theme is revealed in the marketplace, by the time uh, a new ETF is brought to market 90, 120, 180 days later, the theme has started to lose momentum. So we wanted to have a product that would allow us to rotate through themes as we were able to measure the momentum of those themes in the macro environment. And that allows us, we hope, to sort of be a product for all seasons, early in the cycle, maybe more growthy, more pro-cyclical, later in the cycle, more defensive, as things come up along the way uh, that are exogenous or esoteric, we want to be able to have the capacity uh, to invest uh, invest in those as well. And how are you determining those macro themes? So if I look at the fact sheet from uh, the the end of April, the four themes in there are deglobalization, quantitative tightening, inflation for longer, which you mentioned earlier, and then cyclical defensive. But uh, to to your point, you can rotate into new themes if the market environment so presents itself. How how are you determining those those broader themes? Yeah, so as a macro research shop, we're constantly trying to take an evaluation of of the landscape. And we mentioned inflation for longer. That's been something uh, that's been prevalent. There are are, uh, characteristics of inflation, we believe, in this market cycle that are similar to previous uh, periods of, of elevated inflation. There are many things that are dissimilar. So we tried to build really a characteristic profile uh, of each theme. And then after we've done that, we go and we try to find the securities, common stocks, uh, which will allow us to have the most direct exposure to it. So inflation for longer you know, is a perfect example. Uh, you think about a company like Nucor, um, we, we felt to be able to you know, pass along higher costs as, as commodity prices were rising. Uh, they're vertically integrated into the supply chain. They uh, ultimately focus on, um, on more finished product, which are, which are higher margin products. So you're looking for the, the specific characteristics that could, you know, could respond well uh, in, in whatever particular thematic environment you're, you're focused on. The other sort of side of that is, is thinking about our cyclical defensive theme. Right. So now all of a sudden the business cycle evolves. 
advisors, uh, you know, love ETFs because, you know, they're easy to use. Investors are, are sort of uh, given the narrative about how tax efficient they are. Well, they're less tax efficient if you're trading in and out of ETFs. So we wanted to have a, one product that would sort of allow you to uh, navigate the business cycle. And cyclical defensives is sort of the sort of our view thematically right now of what's developing. The consensus is giving um, generally holds that will evidence a soft landing. Uh, they may be wrong and they may be right, but the market is responding to soft landing types of dynamics. Uh, cyclical defensiveness gives you some of the protection of things that are ostensibly safer, while also sort of levering up to some things that remain cyclical. There's strength in the labor market, et cetera. So we're building a mosaic about about the broader landscape, uh, and that's how ultimately uh, we decide on the themes. And to be clear here, how often are the macro themes updated? And, and then I guess even within a macro theme, how often are individual securities changed? So, so both of those things are happening constantly. But in terms of the portfolio turnover, you may see one or two themes turnover in the portfolio each year. We are targeting concepts that are not overtly short-dated. We want intermediate-term themes, things that at the shorter end would might be you know six or eight months, but even at the longer end, 12 or 15 months plus. Right. The key, the key element here is is the momentum, and we want to find things that can long, you know, run a, a slightly longer race. And then every day we're looking at sort of the constituent uh, responsiveness to the, you know, how the theme is playing out in the marketplace. And we will make you know, little adjustments on occasion, um, n- not with great frequency, but every once in a while, something about a particular security, uh, it becomes a little bit more about them and less about the theme. And so we want to replace that uh, or de-emphasize it in, in terms of our core holdings. And there may be another stock that comes along and says, hey, this, this we'd actually be a better fit uh, for, for the way that the theme is evolving in the marketplace. And so we will make, you know, we will make smaller adjustments along the way. And then obviously thematic is in the name of the ETF. But if you look under the hood at what this holds, you, you do get some diversification here. And to, to your point, you are rotating into different macro themes. It's not like you're just sticking with one theme all the way through. My question is, do you see this replacing core equity exposure in a portfolio, or should this just be viewed more like a thematic ETF, which tends to be a satellite holding? We really tried to build it as something that could be uh, part of the, the core holdings of a portfolio. You know, if, if, if investors and advisors sort of believe uh, in the process that we've built over the last couple of decades, identifying where we are in the business cycle, identifying what are the, you know, the key thematic things that, are, that, again, have momentum, then we should be able to rotate during the business cycle where you'd be more defensively positioned at the end, uh, more opportunistically positioned you know, towards, towards the beginning. That really, by definition, is a, is a core holding. Uh, so we think it fits, we fits, it fits right in there. Okay, briefly here, the other ETF you launched earlier this year is the Strategus Global Policy Opportunities ETF, ticker SAGP. So this seeks to hold companies that could benefit from uh, changes in government policies. Just briefly explain this one. Yeah, I think many companies over the last couple of decades, uh, for all of the talk of draining the swamp and, and sort of removing special interests, have found that, you know, Washington is in part the center of their universe, and that's true for domestic enterprise as well as uh, companies from abroad that are doing business here in the United States. And so companies have started to look at corporate lobbying uh, as really a research and development expense. You know, it's, it's a, it's a long-dated investment uh, to try and extract or prevent 
uh, conditions of change within an industry uh, that would be, you know, detrimental or preferential to their operating environment. And so, you know, we took a, a, we've taken a long look at this. We've run a, a domestic-oriented portfolio uh, for um, for almost 10 years, and we really focus in on how much companies are are lobbying and for what they're lobbying. And themes emerge. Uh, and themes evolve and they gain in, uh, and, and fall off in, by way of momentum. And so we're using sort of this research and development lobbying spend as guidance to help us understand, um, you know, what, what is gaining favor and losing it in Washington. And the piece I'd say that's critical here, Nate, is that ultimately we believe we can, we can show um, that, that lobbying and, and some of this investment that companies make do ultimately matriculate to the bottom line, that there is a tangible uh, benefit to corporate profits uh, when companies are able to, to sort of change the narrative in D.C. And, and on that note, I mean, do you only care about the lobbying spend, that lobbying intensity, or does it matter if you actually think those lobbying efforts will be successful? Like I get what you're saying in terms of it filtering down to the bottom line, companies spending yeah. more on lobbying, but do, do you care if you actually have a view on whether or not that lobbying will be successful? So I would answer the question two ways. In, in terms of uh, inclusion in the overall portfolio, n- none of our own political or even, frank, frankly, uh, operating biases sort of factor in, right? The, we're really focused on the intensity, which takes lobbying as a spend and sort of common sizes it across sort of the universe of, of, of companies that, that we're considering. I think one of the reasons that corporate lobbying maybe has a bad rap uh, in the marketplace or amongst um, voters uh, is because, you know, rent-seeking is, is generally looked at as, as disfavorable. And so when you ask about success, one of the elements I would highlight is sometimes it's about mitigating a really bad outcome, making it less bad. That's successful uh, lobbying. Sometimes it's about affecting a change that maybe wasn't on, on the docket altogether, and therefore that would be an overt, an overt success. But by diversifying the portfolio such as we have to, you know, 100 names, both domestic and, uh, and international alike, um, you're able to get a really good cross-current of things um, that do tend to fall on both sides of the political aisle, but in the moment have the momentum that ultimately makes it beneficial for the company or the industry. Well, Nick, with that, we'll have to leave it there. Fantastic perspective this week. Uh, Best of luck to you on these ETFs. Thank you for joining me. Many thanks, Nate. That was Nick Bonesack, CEO of Strategus Asset Management.